0: It's true, especially in boxing, where, like I said before, everybody's an expert. So, um, you know, if we weren't, if coffee box wasn't accurate over the years, uh, we wouldn't be. Probably wouldn't be. Uh, wouldn't be having this conversation now.
1: That clip you just heard is a tiny part of an hour-long conversation that I had with the man who co-created CompuBox, Bob Canobio, and his company, which has tracked the punches of prize fighters for the last 34 years and counting. And I, for one, am glad that we got to have this conversation. Hey everyone, Benjamin Block here, and thanks for tuning in to the latest episode of Block's Corner. Virtually every fight fan knows of CompuBox, however, few know about Bob Canobio's story and how his passion for the sport fueled a desire that manifested in a product that has become synonymous with boxing. Now, without further delay, here's my full conversation that I had with Bob. As I was researching the origins and history of CompuBox, I kind of discovered a bit of a common theme, which is that there are a few people and names along the way that have really contributed in a major way to your development but also to the birth of CompuBox. So I thought we could start with Bob Foster. You know, back in 1968, he left quite the impact on both you and Dick Tiger, albeit the impact on Tiger probably hurt him a bit more. But can you uh, talk about that a little bit?
0: Uh, (laughs) That's funny you bring that up. Um, Yeah, growing up, we were pretty much uh, baseball, football fans. My father was a... You know, growing up in New York, my father actually grew up in Manhattan. Um, So we were Yankee fans. You know, the summer was Yankees. Sure. The winter, the fall was Giants, New York Giant football. Um, The winters were Knicks and Rangers, and that's pretty much the way it was growing up. But for some reason, one night I was flipping through the channels um, actually it was on my father's, the TV, the black and white TV in his, <laughs> in his bedroom. I, sound, I know I sound like I'm dating myself. No, with, you know,
1: with the rabbit me. ears and everything, right? Uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> probably. Um, <laughs> uh, and, um, I flipped into the channels and there uh, it was, Don Dumpy and he was at Friday Night Fights, black and white, grainy TV. And it was Bob Foster, Dick Tiger. And for some reason, I, I admired Dick Tiger, I, although the minimal coverage that boxing got back then was only through newspaper, Daily News. Well, we had the Daily News every day. My dad would bring it home to work, uh, maybe Newsday. I don't recall them covering boxing. I knew of Dick Tiger. Okay, he won a title um, – and I don't know. I was just enamored with Dick Tiger for some reason. And I said, oh, my, my boy Dick Tiger is fighting tonight. I, I knew nothing about Bob Foster. <laughs> and the fight starts. And sure enough, Foster lays him out with a with a left hook. And I still have the vision of Tiger being, you know, they say starched his leg. He couldn't get his legs to cooperate. He was trying to lift his head off the canvas. Oh, it was that like that. Yeah, obviously counted out. And... um You know, from that point on, I was just like hooked on boxing that that one that one show, that one punch just got me, got me hooked on boxing. And then from there it was, you know, on to Wide World of Sports in the afternoons. Oh, sure. uh, You know, when Ali would come in the studio with Cosell after a fight and they would go over. Um, uh, over the highlights, well actually we at times showed a whole fight, and Ali, of course being Ali was such a showman, and you know one thing led to another, and um you know that's where. That's where the romance began with uh, that Bob Foster left hook.
1: Yeah, that sounds great, and and I can imagine, like you said, just with the romance uh, beginning there. You know, it's easy to fall in love with Ali and how beautiful he was in the ring, and obviously had his way with words. I was researching a little bit about Dick Tiger. Unfortunately, I had no idea his life was uh, sadly cut short. Uh, he died in 71, just three years after that fight from liver cancer. But yeah, Bob Foster lived a long, uh, long, healthy life. Did you ever have a chance to cross paths with him or meet you know, him, share that story? You
0: know, I wish I would have. He was a sheriff in Albuquerque, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Oh, I didn't uh, know that.
0: Bob, Bob Foster, yeah. He had a full-time job as a sheriff. Um, I never – I saw him at a fight. We did, we, we did ESPN when we were doing ESPN back in the day. Uh, we actually did a show in, um, in Albuquerque. Um, really? I got I do it was Carl, Michael Hall might've been main event. Um, don't cool who it was, and Foster was at the fight. We were too busy doing our, you know, doing our work. Of course. Um, I didn't get a chance to, um, to meet him, but I, I did see him at a fight, but I never, I never got a chance to, uh actually speak to him and, and and tell him that story i'm sure he would he would have got a kick out of it i'm sure he remembered <laughs> yeah. that left hook <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah he definitely would have gotten a kick out of it that would have been yeah. that would have been fun so i want i want to we'll eventually get to all that with you know the contracts you were able to establish with espn and and all the other networks that are around right now but just going back uh, a little bit when did you develop such an affinity for statistics? Was there a a moment or or sort of a genesis that you remember?
0: Oh yeah, you know, it all goes back to uh, probably when I was like eleven year, ten, eleven years old. My father brought me home this baseball game called Stratomatic, okay, um, which was a board baseball board game. I mean, we, I love baseball as much as boxing. Well, more more so back then, obviously, and. It was uh, a dice game, but it was based on act, actual statistics for for players.
1: Oh, so, I was. This is the original fantasy sports, basically, right?
0: Probably, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, this, the game was developed by a guy in Glen Cove, New York, believe it or not, Milton yeah. Richmond. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he brought the game home, and I started playing, and I started keeping the score of the games, and then from that. Um, I wanted because I'd always look in the paper at the box scores and, you know, you would see the top 10 or in leaders, hitting leaders, pitching leaders, um, home run leaders, the whole, you know, all the statistics that came with baseball. So as I would play my play, the games, I would play like a three game series <laughs> with a team and I would compile the stats. I would do it in a notebook, a school book. Which I didn't use that much, probably, but um, the books, the old notebooks came in handy. I would keep scoring the books and then compile the statistics. <laughs> books know, would,
1: meant for school, we're using for Stratomatic. <laughs>
0: for Stratomatic scorebooks, score exactly. <laughs> um, I have my pencils and um, yeah, so I would keep after every, you know, certain amount of games, I would go through the sheets and come up with the t- each team's statistics and then create my own top 10. I just thought that was the coolest thing. Um, you know, to, uh, to to compile my own statistics. And I think that's actually where that, you know, that thirst for statistics began back, you know, back in the day from playing, uh, playing that stratomatic baseball.
1: Yeah. I mean, it sounds as if you didn't really have the vision of what your life would turn into. You just liked it just for the passion of it pretty much, right? I
0: like, yeah, I, I like recreating the games, you know, I would do, the, I would announce that, you know, you would have a voice announcing the games, or whatever the, you know, particular battle was, I'd play it at my desk, up in my room, and, you know, um, and then keeping score was pretty cool, it was like next best thing to being at the games, and then, like I said, then to be able to create, um, you know, league leaders, statistics from, from the game, I, I just thought that was the coolest thing.
1: Yeah, that is pretty cool. Yeah, like you said, you didn't really know it was going to turn into what your profession would later be in life. So let's just fast forward a little bit. Let's go to, so 1984, right? When did you land at Sports Illustrated before uh, getting the job at Sports Intermediate? Sports
0: Illustrated, I I, um, started there in 79. Okay. I was working, my first job, in in Manhattan was as a a proofreader. I couldn't find any jobs um, Well, I in sports. I mean, everyone and their brother wants to work in sports. Um, (laughs) So I wanted to just get into I wanted to get in the mix. I lived on on Long Island at the time in Lindenhurst. I wanted to get in the mix. So I took a job as a proofreader um, at a law firm because I always I don't know. I had a, a thing about spelling and Puzzles and uh, crossword puzzles. I always uh, had an infatuation with, with with grammar, correct spelling, etc. So I took this job huh. um, as a proofreader. And one of the the client, the, the name of the the law firm is Cravath, Swain, and Moore. One of their clients was Time Inc.
1: So oh, okay. I, uh,
0: every, every day I'd read these, you know, these documents, proofread these documents. Timing, timing, fiftieth and sixth. So. Finally, one day I, I looked. I was looking in the paper, and I saw—believe it or not—it was the want ads in the New York Times. Um, again, I'm dating <laughs> myself, but that's how we—that's how we found jobs back then. Not-
1: i am old enough to know about the want ads section, but uh, yeah,
0: <laughs> believe it or not, yeah, there was no internet. There was <laughs> so um, I saw an opening. Uh, it said, "Reader Service Correspondent, Sports Illustrated." I'm like, "Oh man, this is this is this sounds great." I didn't, never thought I'd get the job. Yeah. Um, so I go down to uh, – working at the law firm. I go down on my lunch break. Um, beautiful part of Manhattan, 50th and 6th. Uh, Time Life building right across from Radio City, Music Hall.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I know skating. that building, yeah. And, yeah, and I actually know Cravath uh, used uh, – at least they used to be. I'm not sure if they still are. Over on like 8th Avenue in the 50s, right?
0: No, this this particular one was all the way downtown. This oh. I was in the Chase Manhattan Plaza all the way downtown by the t- by the towers actually.
1: Oh, so then. you made the trek up for your lunch hour. Okay. Oh,
0: I didn't I didn't know any better back then. I know. I nope. had to go from
1: <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. Think, That's the best thing sometimes. Go ahead, yeah, sorry.
0: I'd take the train. No, I'd take the train to Long Island, I to, to Penn Station and take the subway all the way downtown. Yeah, it was a trek, but it was all new. It was exciting. I I I didn't mind doing it.
1: Um so you're on your lunch hour, and you make it up to the uh, you make like it up to the timing building.
0: It's and actually the interview was right around. Uh, it was in early December, and everything was festive. with Christmas lights at the at the Radio City.
1: Oh, it's magical. The skating
0: rink was right there. I'm like, oh my god, this would be such a cool place to work. I go in for the interview. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was only supposed to be a part time job because the person that had the job was going on leave and was going to come back. Okay. So, um, so I interviewed for the job uh, and it turns out I got the job. I <laughs> <laughs> get the job as a reader service correspondent which back then at Sports Illustrated was, it was part of the letters department. It's letters to the editor which was a big part of at Sports Illustrated back then. They got thousands of letters a week from readers commenting on articles, requesting and
1: handwritten of course. At,
0: yeah, I must have impressed the, the person who interviewed me with knowledge of sports because my job was anyone that called up Sports Illustrated looking for inf- sports information, it came through my desk. So it was like a sports, it really was ahead of its time. It was sort of like a sports phone kind of thing.
1: That's a big people job. I mean, in terms of being a gatekeeper for literally anything that was coming in.
0: It was great. I love It was a great job. It really was because I actually got to meet a lot of people through that job. Sure. Um, which, uh, you know, people at ABC, guy researchers at ABC, uh, which was up the street from would call and ask for articles, because, again, back then you could not look anything up on the Internet. You had to get a have a hard copy of a magazine to do your research. So they would ask me for, hey, I, there was an article on, I don't know, say uh, a college football anything uh, player that was going to be on abc yeah that week and they would add, and i would go down to the lobby and i would meet them i would meet them in the lobby what they call them tear sheets it would be their, their magazine was broken down by articles and that's how you did your research back then so i would meet to meet these guys from abc and all these different networks or speak to people on the phone it was a great way of networking um
1: oh that's invaluable
0: yeah. So I, it was just a great spot. So yeah, I was very fortunate to get that position. Um, turns out the person who went on the leave never came back. So I, ke- I kept that job. So I had that job <laughs> you know, for five years. Timing. And um, again, uh, location, it turns out that HBO Sports was in that same building back in the back in the day. They were on the sixth floor. I was on nineteen, nineteenth 19th hmm. floor time life. And that's how I ended up uh, making my my contacts with with HBO.
1: Yeah. And so let's go to the second big name, basically, in your life. So there was Bob Foster and Dick Tiger for that fact. But the second big name that really stands out is Ross Greenberg. Oh,
0: yeah. No question.
1: Now I I've heard the story so maybe you could fill in some of the gaps but the story as I've heard is you just go down to his office one day <laughs> I don't know when the when you know what the moment was but uh what do you you knock on the door you know high.
0: I I wasn't I wasn't shy back then I would mo yeah I would That's amazing. I would, I would mosey around first of all I was on 19 on 20 was the editorial staff of Sports Illustrated, which back then was like gold. I mean, all <laughs> the best writers in the country, in the world, were were working for Sports Illustrated back then, too. So I had them on 20. I found out that HBO was on six. So one day, again, at lunchtime, I went down and started, you know, I was walking around the offices, and sure enough, I walk in, and they, off the office door was open. I didn't knock, <laughs> and it's Ross. <laughs> I meet I meet Ross Greenberg. I said, Hey, I'm you know, to let introduce myself.
1: And you knew he was a producer at the time.
0: I knew he was a producer for, for boxing, for HBO boxing, which was just getting off the ground back then too. They really hadn't really done too much up to at that point. They were all actually buying re um, reairs of fights. I think they started with he might have started with uh Frasier Ali and then they, they started by buying fights and re airing them. Oh interesting. But I told, I told them that um I worked I worked upstairs at Sports Illustrated but I have access to the Sports Illustrated library which again which was a sight to behold because there was actually people there all they did was clip articles from newspapers <laughs> every major athlete had their own folder again this Oh my pre- god I
1: I could only imagine
0: yeah. this was pre uh Free, internet pre-Google, pre-Wikipedia, everything. No digital, free.
1: just stacks and stacks of papers for whatever red athlete.
0: Po- everything was in red folders, all all in the top names. So I'm in there in the library, <laughs> and I'm looking through. Joe Lewis. Now, I mean, I'm, there were clips of actual Joe Lewis fights going back to the 30s, actually the au- actual articles. Oh, my gosh. Um, I was like, this is unbelievable stuff. And I mentioned that to Ross, that if you ever need – any kind of boxing research i have this access you know and i'd love to work i love boxing i love to work with you guys and sure enough they were cooking up the um boxing's best they called this um they had did a series back then called boxing's best and it was joe lewis rocky marciano um uh some of the other top top fighters of the day um mm-hmm. They were doing a series, and he hired me to do to, to research to be the researcher for that series. So that's really how how I got my start, how I got to meet him, and really got you know got my feet wet as far as boxing and, and boxing research.
1: How soon after that interaction did he hire you there on the spot, or um, or how did that sort of come about?
0: He, he we spoke. And I would probably went back, probably went back down there again, being a pain in the butt that I was. <laughs> probably another week later, and then finally he let me. He said to me, "We were doing, we're doing a series. We're doing a series called Boxing's Best." Okay. Um, it was probably a month later, maybe.
1: Okay. Squeaky research. as it.
0: Yeah, so I would spend my time. Jack Dempsey was another Dempsey, Lewis, Marciano, Holly, and it was probably one other heavyweight. I'm probably missing somebody, but those were the. And I would go spend my lunch hours uh, going through autobiographies, these clip folders, putting together all this research for the for the sh- for the shows for the boxing fest. So that's you know that's how um, that's what I got started.
1: That's very cool, and a third name I wanted to throw in the mix was John Gibbs. Uh, that name stood out to me. I know that that encounter happened while you were working at Sports Information Databases back in '84. Was it?
0: Right. That's where. Um, yeah. So from Sports Illustrated, stayed there from '79 to '84, and we I went to the Sports Information Database. We, it, this again. This was this guy. Um, I think his name was John Gillespie, I can't think of his first name, had this vision where this is just, just when portable computers were coming out. It wasn't laptops, they were portable computers and databases. He had this vision where you would take your computer to a venue, to a sports venue, and you would, um, you know, you'd, you'd file your report. You'd also have access to uh, to, to a database. Everything was computerized. Yeah. it's going to be computerized at this with his that's what his vision was
1: he had that foresight
0: and, right and i was we i was hired as a um as a researcher uh a boxing researcher um by sports information database um and that's where uh while we were there we we were doing the uh you know, it was kind of like data. I wouldn't say data entry, but it was very close to it. We had to end, someone had to put the data into the, into the database. And that's what I was doing, along with Logan Hobson, who was my part. and eventually became my partner with CompuBox. But that's where I met him at the database. And it was actually in Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. Uh, so I was commuting from Long Island to Hasbrook Heights, which was a hall over the GW Bridge, over Route 80. I'm like, man, yeah. there's something. It's got. This is, a, this is a cool job, but there's got to be a better way. Uh, this the commute's just it's too much.
1: I was going to say for those that don't know, I mean Hasbrook Heights is just over the bridge, but that's from the city, <laughs> and you coming from Long yeah. Island, that's a cool. that's a trek and a half.
0: It was a haul, but again, it was all new. Uh, you know, we it was all new. It was exciting, so I initially didn't mind it too much, but after a while, it, you know, it got to be a grind. Um, Sure. So that's where that's where we um got the idea for the um for, for box because someone that Gibbs Gibbs had um come in with a uh, a tennis program. He had written a tennis program and he had taken this this portable computer at uh, which at the time uh, had disk drives. There was no hard drive on these original computers. There was a A drive, a B drive. The A drive was the program. The B was data. Okay. So no battery backup. <laughs> oh, jeez. That, that was it. the screen was minute. The thing looked like a sewing machine, <laughs> but the screen was very minute. <laughs> he had taken this thing to the U.S. Open and created like more or less a box score for tennis. Okay. And I'm like, wow. I'm I'm sitting there with, at lunch one day with with, with Logan, I'm like. We, we, we can do this for boxing. We should try this. And it turns out that um, we had the program written um, while we were at the database. Gibbs wrote, you know, wrote the program.
1: Yeah, so how did that work? I'm curious, uh, because this is where the story really gets interesting for me. You come across this guy, Gibbs, who had developed the software for the tennis, and then you and Logan get the idea to apply that to boxing. So... Right. What was what do you remember about that interaction? Did you go up to Gibbs? How did you did you tell him your idea? Or yeah, we told
0: him what we wanted. We wanted to do. We wanted to create a similar program for boxing, and we we had the wherewithal to try to keep it simple. We didn't want it to be right too many too many keys like right hook, you know, jab, hook, uppercut, or head, body. All we kept it. Pretty simple at first, but jab, and still is jab, connect, jab, miss, power, connect, power, miss. The power being a non-jab, and we have we have since added body, but we kept it simple. We told him what we wanted, and he basically wrote the program. Um,
1: How long did that take, or do you remember sort of the initial cost?
0: Probably a month. Okay, I would say a month, and we had it, and we tested it. But what happened was. The database, the great concept that it was, the guy who raised the money wasted went through all his money in a year. He he had these mahogany desks in his office and hmm. uh, flying all over the country, he burned through he burned through the money that he had. And he no one he was no one really liked the guy, and he couldn't get the contracts that he thought he was gonna get, despite having such a great concept of a sports database.
1: Who is this guy again? Time.
0: His name was um, Michael Gillespie. was the was the founder of Sports Information Database.
1: Okay. Uh, okay.
0: He must have hired forty people as editors for all different sports. He just burned through the money. Sure. So, what happened was we uh, we got HBO. We got HBO while we were at the database. I had I had known Ross from my research. So take of the story. We um, we go in <laughs> We, I notify. I told Ross we have this program. We want to come in, and give you a demo. He goes, well, "Okay, come in." Me and Logan go in. We show it to him, and he he goes, "Okay, I, I like it." Like <laughs> it was like we were. It was one meeting, and we were basically in business. It was so. It was surreal. It,
1: you, he, you had laid he the had foundation me. years, you know, years prior. So that makes sense. Well, yeah.
0: I honestly, you're right. Honestly, I think Ross knew my passion for boxing. He saw my research, my work. He knew I had an understanding for boxing and knowledge, um, and a passion for it. So he trusted, he trusted us. Um, so now while this is happening, the database goes, goes under. So we leave, we left the database. Um, and we, uh, formed, we formed CompuBox. We had to get a new program written, um, we wanted to get break away totally from from that sports information database. Go on our own. And we had another program written, which is another crazy story because the guy that wrote the, the original, the second copy box program, was a catcher on my on my modified softball team <laughs> on Long Island. This guy,
1: you I make know. connections anywhere from from the boardroom to the to the baseball field.
0: It's crazy. This guy Bob Orff, We played on this pretty highly competitive softball team on long island and he was a catcher and i remember him saying to me once he goes you know i know you're sort of involved in you know in sports and boxing if you ever need anything let me know really that's so it turns out when we left the database yeah we needed we needed a program because we already had we already had hbo as a client
1: so wait the program that gibbs wrote for you or developed for you was that tied to sports information databases is that why you had to write this other one
0: yeah, that went down. Right, that went down. That went down with the ship.
1: Yeah. So this other one that you developed with your buddy on the softball field, those costs came out of your pocket then.
0: Or... Yeah, that's exactly right. We we had to pay.
1: Right. What was that? Right. What was that like back in the 80s? I mean, were you uh did you did you have some financing help or were there people honestly, trying to deter you?
0: Honestly, he didn't. He was a friend of mine and he already was a successful programmer. He had worked for the government. I don't know. He had a job that he really couldn't speak about, but he did some serious work for the government. He also wrote. Wow. He was one of the original programmers for the um, the arcade games.
1: He was no like way. Light years
0: ahead of, yeah, he was light years ahead of him, ahead of his time as far as programming. I think he thought this was like a side gig, you know. Oh yeah, and he probably didn't even think it was ever <laughs> going to go any go anywhere. I That's just, so was, funny. I was just a, you know a, a teammate of his with this, but we did have the HBO contract, so he charged. Right, us.
1: that gives you a lot of validation.
0: Exactly, um, but I don't think he wasn't looking to uh, make a killing on it. He he wrote the program. Let's put it this way: we, what he charged, I think we made it back by our third or fourth fight that we had that we did. So, huh. which did. was
1: the Hagler-Hearn's fight, probably, but we'll get to that.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that was our third fight. But he, yeah, he wrote the program. Um, and we took it to um, down to Atlantic City for, for a live show. Got the wrinkles out, and um, we were and, and and then we were CompuBox. CompuBox was born.
1: What were some of the early? Uh, well, it sounds like it wasn't too detrimental, obviously. But what were some of the early wrinkles or kinks that you had to deal with and overcome?
0: The main thing to this, even to this day, whenever we train an operator, is was getting the coordination between what you're seeing in the ring or on the screen and what you're hitting on the keyboard.
1: Yeah. You know,
0: the coordination between, between, you know, again, the, what you see and what, what the key you're hitting, what key you're hitting. That was the, that was the hardest thing. Just getting the reps, you know? Um,
1: Yeah. I imagine not being distracted or even intimidated by the atmosphere and the big fight. That's, that's not something that you can necessarily teach. You have to just go through that, I guess, right?
0: We lo- I, I, I know. I loved, we loved it. I loved it. I loved being there.
1: I could um, tell, yeah.
0: You know, it's just, I honestly, we were not intimidated at all by it. Really? Um, no. I had Ross, before we started CompuBox, while I was at Sports Illustrated, Ross hired me as a, as a production assistant for a couple of fights. In fact, my first trip to Vegas was Duran Hagler. Um, In 83, I think it was. And I was hired as like a a production assistant ringside. So I had and I went to a few others. So I had I I was at Spinks and um, Eddie Gregory the fight that didn't happen. But OK, we we, had some experience at ringside live. So that sort of helped, too but um
1: yeah being there there is no replacement as somebody who's been to a handful of fights ringside myself it's um right you you can't replicate sort of just the sights and the sounds that you see there as opposed to maybe being further away
0: yeah i mean right the excitement especially back then um yeah you know the first fight we did was Bramble Mancini uh the rematch in Reno green on nevada and there, there, there had to be fifteen thousand mancini fans in that lawler event center it was the loudest one of the loudest venues to this day i don't know it's just all mancini um, <laughs> just like
1: a wall of then, sound <laughs>
0: yeah it was just so um yeah i mean it was just it was just a, i don't know what it is a gift whatever we just i never felt really intimidated by uh by being, you know, being live for these big fights. So that surely helped a lot because, you know, is that an expression, in, you know, garbage in, garbage out. You can have the best program in the world, the best box, the best, um, you know, the best vantage point. In it. And if, and if the data that you're entering in isn't accurate, you're, it's, you're not going anywhere. So, um, yeah, we were just, we were just fortunate to be able to, you know, together, um, you know, at the very beginning and, and, you know, able to maintain it over the years.
1: And and how aware were you of the fact that you would eventually really change the narrative of how broadcasters and, and color commentators are calling the fights? Or were you just so focused and excited about getting your product out there?
0: Well, yeah, that that was our focus for, gosh, for a couple of years, just, just getting the product out there
1: you know Just kind of having your I, blinders on doing your thing
0: doing our thing on a consistent basis um we didn't know what we had really we there was no basis prior to what we what we did so like when Mancini threw um i think he threw something like 1500 punches in that that first fight oh my god we didn't know we didn't know what that equated to what is 1500 punches we know he was throwing a lot of punches sure but uh, it turns out it was close to, you know, it was a hundred around where Bramble was throwing maybe half that to land in a much higher percentage. So we knew we were onto something, but it was just a matter of gaining acceptance um, back then that we really, we didn't think we were inventing the wheel. We didn't, we didn't come off that. We were trying to be, we were trying to be humble about it. But, and we rightfully so, because here we are we were on HBO Sports for our first fight, which back then, HBO was like the the, the leader in boxing. There was HBO and I think the, the network, ABC was, was
1: just those two.
0: Maybe maybe NDC, but it was HBO. That's like, you know, the summit. So we were pretty humble about it. And then the, we had to convince the writers back then, too, about what we had, which wasn't easy because you had these, you know, these grizzled veterans, Pat Putnam. At Sports Illustrated, my cats, New York Times, Phil Berger, Wally Matthews, he said all. You know how it is in boxing; everyone's everybody's an expert in boxing.
1: <laughs> I've heard that. Love. It's true, though. I mean, it. I, it
0: comes from the passion. If you love boxing, you yeah. have a strong opinion, and everyone. So. You know, we, tried, we had a tread light, plus we had to deal with Larry Merchant,
1: too. <laughs> yeah, that it's interesting you bring him up because, you know, that kind of segues into what I wanted to bring up is that, look, you're trying, like you said, you're trying to get into boxing. It's one of the oldest sports around, and you're bringing something new into something that is just stock full of tradition. And like you said, even though you weren't trying to reinvent the wheel, you still needed to... Convince or persuade a lot of the you know uh, a lot of the veterans in the game that what you're doing is going to have a positive impact and yeah. it was met pretty cautiously and and probably most famously by Larry Merchant.
0: well Larry used to call it our computer toy he called <laughs> he called it our computer toy and I remember after every fight I go up to ray leonard's uh, uh manager and a bodyguard this guy Ollie Dunlop he used to travel on I'm like I want to just choke Larry merchant. I can't, <laughs> I, want, I can't stand. What is he doing now? Why is he, he's trying, you know, he's got to give us a chance. I, and, and Ollie would say, don't worry. You're cool with Ross. As long as Ross, if, as long as you're okay with Ross, you, 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 you guys will be okay. Then we would get some real, you know, um, a pat on the back for Ross. Good job. And we, you know, we go on to the next fight, but, it wasn't easy at first.
1: No, he you know, No, he didn't cool. make it any easier. It sounds like he was giving maybe just a hard time just, just for the sake of it, or or maybe he was just slower to come around.
0: Maybe all of the above, maybe he felt it was taking away some of his play too, don't forget. You know. There's only so much airtime to go around. Maybe he thought uh putting up stats um Yeah, you know, would somehow deflect his uh what he had to say. Um so, you know. There were a lot of factors involved, so a lot of egos involved. As you know, in television, this oh yes, in any other any other when you get to a certain level in any occupation, there's there's egos involved. So, you know, we had to deal with that too. But we slowly we slowly wore them down to the point where the last 10 years that Larry was with HBO, he would actually call me for information. So <laughs> tell me, what about that so-and-so? How many punches did he throw? And I'm like, okay, Larry, yep, you got it. <laughs> so we finally, we eventually broke him down, but...
1: Um, i comes come full circle. Did he ever Did he ever sort of apologize? I don't know if he needed to apologize for anything, but did he ever sort of backtrack and, and say, hey, I was a little too hard on you guys, or, or, or he... He
0: never said it directly in those words, but to, just the fact
1: that he that came he to you was, eventually that he
0: called he would call me he would see i would see him at a fight He'd, hey can you do me a favor can you look up this that to me was uh you know his way of yeah. saying that i accept you know we accept i accept compu box and um you know i respect you guys
1: well that must have felt really good he was he was a big name uh you know in the, in the game for a long time
0: Yeah, it it did. It was, you know, kind of give us some uh, affirmations. Is that the correct word? Yeah, that he would, um, that he came around and, uh, you know, recognized. Because here's a guy that saw Ray Robinson fight. I mean, Larry Merchant (laughs) has been around the block, man. He's seen it all. So... Uh, ringside for, for a lot of big events. So, um, the young Ali, you know, so the guys had seen it all. So,
1: so he was maybe uh, within his right to be a little slow to, to come to something new. But I mean, look, you're in your 34th year now, ESPN Fox, the new streaming service, the Zone, which seems to be really taken off. I don't know what else am I missing. You seem to have contracts and with Showtime. with all the major players, Showtime. We
0: do Showtime. We do. Um, we're going to do World Boxing Super Series when, once once the semifinals resume. Um, we'll do those. We'll do. We do uh, MMA. We do the Professional Fighters League. We have an MMA program as well. So. Um, that's right yeah, yeah. We're, pro- we're gonna probably do a probably 120 shows this year somewhere around there oh,
1: that's, So that's unreal yeah and 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 a few years ago i think you just started to institute compiling the stats for fights off of the tv is that just to give yourself more fights more work than than being ringside at at however many you can get to
0: yeah, it was um, I think now with the way with the way the technology is with the overhead the cameras, the jibs they call it and the handheld cameras. Right. Um yeah, I mean it's just uh it's just like being ringside There's really there's no uh there's no noticeable drop off um between being ringside we do we do shows ringside we do some off, off, off remotely as well. So um yeah, and, and and we also have uh, Lee Groves is my the lead researcher for CompuBox. He's got an extensive collection, film, uh, fight collection. So if we need a fight, a couple fights on a particular fighter uh, to round out their profile, he'll go into his library. He'll he'll count the fights, and that's something else that has um, allowed CompuBox to grow. What's that? So that? It's more than we're more than just a live service. We're also we provide extensive uh pre-fight research packages to all all our clients you know we break down um, what i call beyond the tail of the tape um which you'll see on graphics you know age height weight knockouts knockout percentage rounds sport, champions sport. we provide all that data uh information as far as well as a stack pre-fight stack comparison i don't know if you've ever Boxing scene runs a lot of our stuff.
1: Uh, I do, our, yeah. They uh, more than anybody else. They really, yeah. they really do so, a great job promoting you guys. Yeah,
0: so that's what it, it's evolved. We must have, uh, I, I think it's up to not, almost nine thousand fighters in our database. Wow, thirty. So. We're able to give you, you know, weight class averages. What is the average middleweight throw? What is the average heavyweight throw? What is the weight class record for each weight class? What's the most punches thrown by one, you know, overall by one fighter? So it's evolved over time into more than, you know, just a live service. We're able to give you historical references as well as, um, you know, pre-fight content as well.
1: And and with the depth of all that knowledge, do you get approached by fighters or or teams of fighters, or, or do they just access it publicly like the rest of us can get our hands on?
0: We you know we used to get we used
1: to we worked I worked
0: training camp I worked Ray Leonard we worked Ray Leonard's training camp for the Hagler fight. Did you really? We were hired by Ray Leonard. yep. Yeah. we were in his camp in um in in January, and. We we went. We tracked Ray Leonard in sparring before the Hagler fight. We went two different trips to down to Palmer Park, Maryland, and we also broke down Hagler's fights. I think we had ten of Hagler's fights that we counted. And honestly, we told him we put we did an analysis and we told Ray that Hagler is a slow starter. We broke him down one through four five,
1: based on three. the numbers.
0: Yeah, based on 10 fights, it was, a, it was a good size sampling. We said he's a slow starter. If I was you, if we were, if we were devising a strategy, I would jump on Hagler right away and wow. try to put rounds in the bank. And sure enough, you didn't know what happened in that fight? Hagler, Hagler came out um, orthodox mm-hmm. in the first round, threw 16 punches in the first round. That's it. And Ray won the first four rounds. He came out. I'm not saying it was only because of the data that we gave him, but it showed that the numbers did not lie. It showed.
1: So this was 1987. And this also, this turned out to be Hagler's last fight, I believe.
0: Yeah, he never fought again.
1: Wow. So
0: so after that, we worked with several main events fighters. We worked with uh, Hall of Field when he was going up to heavyweight. Um, they wanted us to com- compare his sparring sessions at Heavyweight compared to what he was a cruiser. We worked with Meldrick Taylor, Pennell Whitaker, all the main events guys. We worked with Lennox Lewis. Uh, Eddie Futch was uh, very instrumental. And in, in a lot of the old trainers didn't like, resisted the box too, back in the day. They didn't understand a computer. And, but Eddie Futch was, embraced it, worked with us on that um but i think nowadays now the copy is it's everywhere now it's on all the networks and i think these trainers are savvy and the fighters are savvy enough just to look at the look at a fight or go on boxing scene after a fight and they they know and they see the score they see the uh, reports and they're able to you know gather gather this data on their own without having us to come in and um you know and do it for
1: them well yeah so, you've clearly established yourself now to that point but in the early days having people embrace you and and spread the word about you know how advantageous it is to have these numbers and comparisons I mean that must have meant the world
0: it meant a lot and it was and it, it, it also added to our credibility now we could go around no doubt know, and tell people hey <laughs> Ray Leonard hired us and we, I, I tell that story about with Hagler breaking down the Hagler fight, how he's, you know, he starts so slow and sure enough, we just, you know, like I said 16 punches in the first round. Um, and also I think we were hired by NDC in the 88 Olympics too. We were in Seoul, Korea for the, for the 88 Olympics. Oh, um, yeah, it was counterpunch. It was called counterpunch. We worked with Marv, Marv Albert and Ferdy Pacheco, um, 17 days for boxing, two sessions a day, and uh, I remember saying to Logan, "Like, we need, we need, we need an upset, or we need a fighter, an American fighter, to get screwed to really <laughs> to put CompuBox on the map because it was prime time back then. Boxing got a lot of play back in '88, and mm-hmm. sure enough, Roy Jones got outlanded the Korean fighter three to one in the finals, uh, according to according to uh, CompuBox, and, and they gave the decision to to the Korean fighter, and the numbers were everywhere. And that that's an, uh, really helped launch us um, back in the day. We were still in, only in our third year in 88, and that's when we ended up getting uh, ESPN in um, 89, really? in addition to HBO. So, But a lot of it had to do with... Uh,
1: so a lot whatever. came off of that. That was, that was the light, right, the light middleweight, 88, Seoul. He lost to Sihan Park. Yeah, that yeah. was... Uh... Wow, that's a big moment for you guys, for sure. That
0: was huge. Yeah, that was huge. Because like I said, we had him out. I mean, Spike Lee did a 30-for-30 30 30 on it. They named it 86. The name of the feature was, I think, 86-24. That was that's what Jones outlanded, the Korean fighter, over three rounds.
1: Yeah, it, was, it wasn't even a controversy. And it's funny. I don't know if you've ever... I mean, it's probably not funny to Roy Jones because he forever lives not no, with the silver, but you you made a lot off of his <laughs> misfortune. I guess is one way to spin it, but uh, yeah, a lot of good yeah. things came your way.
0: Yeah, that, and again, that gave that gave us a lot of attention, and then of course the third fight we ever did uh, was Hagler Hearn's. <laughs> I mean, 3rd in, in April. We the first fight was Bramble Mancini. Then we did Holmes against um, David Bay, and then boom, April in Vegas. Our first trip to first uh, trip to Caesar's Palace outdoor <laughs> arena, Hagler Hearn's. I'm like, <laughs> I, I remember saying to Logan, would "We get paid for this? This is like unbelievable." And then, sure enough, they came out blazing in that first round. They threw like. Eighty-seven punches, no, and Hagler threw no jabs.
1: I was just going to say, I don't. I've watched that a few times, and I don't think either one has us threw any jabs in the first two and a half rounds. It was just an all-out brawl,
0: right? And that gave us some credibility as well, because, like, you know, they just, like I said, they came out firing, and the numbers. I remember looking down at my screen. I had Hagler. Looking at my screen after the first round, I'm like, oh, my God, 80, whatever it was, 85 punches, no jabs. <laughs> and uh, we got a lot of mileage out of that. In fact, Hagler was that, was on the Johnny Carson show um, a week after. And, and Johnny says to him, uh, boy, Marvin, you weren't you weren't messing around in that first round. You threw something like 80 something punches and no jabs. He didn't say CompuBox. He referenced the numbers. And Hagler uh, said, "You know, I came to fight." And yeah, uh, again, it was just stuff that just, you know,
1: just a snowball out. of uh, a snowball effect happening for you guys early on, right?
0: It was, it was just, yeah, everything was happening fast, and uh, you know, and we were just very fortunate uh, to be in the right place at the right time back then. I tell you,
1: absolutely. But you put in a lot of the hard work, which can't be discounted at all. Um, no. Now, I know you're, you know, then and now, you're you're feeding the numbers to broadcasters so they can really sort of have that layer to add to the narrative during the fight, but you got a part of my ignorance on this, but do, do the refs sit in ringside? Do they, are the judges, excuse me, do the judges ever ask for the numbers? Are they privy to them, or... No,
0: they never, they never have... Um, I know they must reference them after afterwards, especially but, when there's a couple, you know, a bad decision.
1: That's um, kind of what I was sort of going at there. But during the fight, there's no way that they have the percentages and the. the... No, they don't. Okay.
0: They don't see it. They don't. And you know what? I'm, I'm kind of glad it's that way. I really don't want to. I wouldn't want to be dra- dragged into that sewer, you know, where. where um, not that our numbers aren't accurate, but just to. Uh, I I like it the way it is we're we're providing information. We're not scoring fights, although you can go back and look at our numbers on a round by round basis, but you know, giving you a providing a barometer of a fighter's activity. We're not scoring. Um, but, um, to have it as part of the scoring, I don't know if I want, we really would want that association given all the bad decisions and, uh, that continue to, to happen in the sport. Um, I'd have to think hard if they ever did approach me about it, but um, I kind of like it the way it is now, separate separate and apart. I think they have a hard enough time scoring a fight, to have them worry about looking at numbers, which I think would really confuse some of those judges. So, um,
1: <laughs> Yeah, to sort know. of have that influence on judges who, right, are already making questionable tallies. Yeah, I think yeah. the separation of church and state, so to speak, is probably... Best for the sport, which already comes under a lot of a lot of skepticism. You know, I mean, most, right, yeah, go ahead. And
0: rightfully so. I mean, even you know, even to this day, there's there's still you know terrible decisions still. Oh, it seems to be seems like it, in a majority of the big fights, there always seems to be one scorecard that's you know way
1: off the mark. Yeah, you know? I mean, you could look at recent examples, right? I mean, you got Tyson Wilder. You know, a lot of people. Didn't exactly think that that was, uh, I guess, while there's two knockdowns, you know, in the 12th were, were enough. And then you got the triple, you got the triple G Canelo uh, discrepancies. So you don't have what, to look too far back for, for judges. It happens
0: to... all, what the first Canelo, triple G, one, Adelaide Bird had a 10 rounds to two for Canelo. Yeah. I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, you know.
1: Yeah, that was, I still, I still scratch my head over that one. I, I'd yeah. like to see those guys have a third, have a third go. Um, but, you know, I think we're fortunate. What do you think about the boxing landscape right now? In different divisions, and different weight classes, there's, there's at least one or two really exceptional fighters, it seems like.
0: I think it's yeah, I think there are a lot of good fighters out there and a lot of and in all of the weight class in each of the weight classes, each of the major weight classes. Boxing has got getting more exposure now than ever. Um the only thing that troubles me a bit is the fragmentation. How you know the zone the zone has their fighters. ESPN seems to have their fighters, and
1: Yeah, that see. that caused a stir, right? When uh Tyson Fury signed when he signed the other day, and then it became where Fury Wilder and Anthony Joshua were all with different networks, kind of, so to speak. And that and that concerns people as far as if they're going to get the best fights. I mean, I guess. Right. One- That's,
0: right. I mean, I understand each of these entities, they have an investment in these fighters and they're going to want to recoup that investment. But um, boxing to really be healthy it, the, the, the boxing fans gravitate to the heavyweights. It's been that way always. Back to, back to the back in the day, if you have a popular heavyweight champ who fights everyone. Um, it, it attracts the casual fan. They all they gravitate to the heavies. And right now we have three. You know, there's three good heavyweights out there, um, and that's where we thought we were heading. We were, we thought we were going to get the fury um, wilder rematch uh, in 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 May. Uh, which may or may not happen. Joshua was gonna w- was talking about you know fighting Wilder. They were going back and forth. Now Joshua was fighting uh, Baby Miller, big Baby Miller in June. Um, so
1: right, a slightly yeah. a contender, slightly a little bit less. Maybe he hasn't really uh, hit his prime yet, but yeah, no, he can yeah, he can yeah, promote he, a fight yeah. for sure. <laughs>
0: yeah, so. Again, I know uh, Miller, uh, Joshua is with the zone. They have to recoup their investment. ESPN is going to look to recoup their investment fury, but they're going to have to fight each other eventually. And one thing I've learned over the years, if it makes if there's enough money to be made, they will still they'll, they'll cross cross paths So one network. will <laughs> work with the other and they will fight each other. But that's the way the boxing will really thrive if the right, you know, if the right fights are made, the right guys fight each other. And it looks like Canelo and Triple G are going to have, it's going to happen again. Cause I just read that uh, Triple G is close to signing with the zone. So.
1: Yeah. I've heard rumors about that. So, I mean, first we're going to get a great fight with Canelo and Danny Jacobs, yeah, on Cinco right. de Mayo in the garden. And hopefully after that, we'll, we'll maybe uh, have some, you know, we'll have some better, knowledge about what's going to happen with maybe a third Triple G and Canelo.
0: Right. That's no layup for, oh. uh, for Canelo. Danny Jacobs is, uh, you know, he's a good fighter. He, he's got a style that um, could give Canelo trouble. He gave Triple G all he could handle. So
1: Yeah, I was in the house for that fight a few years ago. And um, I'm not saying that, you know, Danny Jacobs got robbed, but he gave a, a really good fight, which to that point, nobody had even come close to uh, sort right. of— tipping Triple G off of his, you know, off of, uh, off balance or anything.
0: Exactly. He, he gave a good account of himself. And, uh, you know, I think he's going to be, it's, it's not going to be an easy fight for Canelo. And I got to give Canelo credit for taking this fight too. So, and, um, hopefully it'll lead to the, you know, the, the, the third fight with Triple G. Yeah, I do fans, credit. That's what the fans want. Boxing fans don't ask for a lot. They'll take, they'll take, you know, they'll take these so-so fights but you got to deliver a couple of big fights to these fans, a couple a couple per year, and, and these fans are happy. They don't ask for much, but they want you got to have a couple of these super fights a year, and hopefully, it you know it's going to happen this year.
1: Yeah, hey, you're right. And boxing's lucky to have some guys who are all about taking the big fight: Terrence Crawford, Triple G, Canelo, Danny Jacobs. Hopefully, Anthony Joshua will will get into that mix. We'll see after he gets past uh, or fights Jarrell Miller. Yeah on June 1st at the garden, but a lot of exciting things coming up. Is there a is there a weight class or or a division that's harder or easier for you to uh track the punches for? Um well, the heavyweights are probably the easiest because they,
0: they're bigger and they're, they're generally slower, so there's probably they're probably the easiest to track, although the young Tyson was very—it wasn't easy because his hands were so fast.
1: Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, you came up with Tyson basically around the same time. Yeah, we—yeah, uh, 80, yeah. 86, we—, we Your we careers started. paralleled each other, sort of. <laughs> yeah, Tyson—the uh the
0: first Tyson fight we did was— uh the fight before he fought Berbick, uh, Alfonso Ratliff, Fonzo Ratliff, I think it was. Okay. And then the next, yeah, the next fight was Berbick. We were there. We were at Las Vegas Hilton. So, but he was he was difficult because his hands were so fast. Um, but really, all the no the, the matter of the weight class, some guys, some some lightweights are going to throw eighty punches around. Some are going to throw fifty. It all depends on style of fighters. Um, so. Again, the heavies are probably the easiest to count because they're a little bit slower. But in general, they're all you know they're all pretty much the same as far as what they throw per round. Um, they're all they're all around in the seven, you know sixties uh, to seventy per round.
1: Interesting, so, yeah. And then every yeah. now and then someone someone's outside that range either for better or for worse. Uh, I was watching a Leo uh, Santa Cruz fight. He's he's one of, he's becoming one of my favorite fighters to just watch just because of the just the activity that he has in the ring. And he has that old school mentality. I'll take on the best and I'll give a show. And I love what he's all about. But as far as tracking his punches, that must be, uh, no, no blink, no blink. Yeah. Well, kind he's of right
0: up there at the top. He throws, uh, <laughs> he's around 85 around, which is among the, it's, it's it probably is the top him and chocolate Tito, who's actually on the, uh, Roman Gonzalez is on the downside now, but he, the two of them are up there in the eighties. Wow. Um, but actually, you know, I'd rather count a, a fight like that where it was got, it's got a nice flow to it than a fight where they're clinching and holding. Like the Gill, like the Gill Eubank was a sloppy fight. Yeah. Was, uh, it wasn't, you know, I would. I prefer a fight where they're, where they're throwing. Both fighters are throwing. They're in a nice flow, minimal clinching, clean punching. Um, I, you know, I don't care what they throw. I prefer that over over a, you know clinching and holding and, and and moving around and not punching
1: yeah you're i i agree i was watching that james DeGale chris eubanks jr fight on showtime saturday night this past saturday right. it just it didn't i wouldn't say it didn't have a rhythm but the rhythm was a little off and i mean it, it practically turned into moments of wwe toward yeah the uh yeah. latter rounds but that's neither here nor there i guess <laughs> uh, styles
0: make styles make fights styles
1: right? make fights and and yeah. styles really mean a lot to copy box and, and tracking from what it sounds like well um well lastly what would you say about the evolution just from 85 to to now are you are you happy with it or are you surprised by any elements of it and, and what do you sort of see to come in the future
0: from a from a CompuBox standpoint, yeah,
1: from a CompuBox.
0: Well, the the fact that uh, the technology now is so is so great that you know we're able to interface our stats. Uh, we've in, improved our technology, and the technology on the other side, in the trucks, the graphic, the graphic generated graphic machines, and the trucks have come so far that we're able to integrate our stats and, and put stats up in real time. I mean, we never were able to do that. Back in the day, we had to, you know, wait till the round was over and we had a headset I mean, to a, a guy in the truck. We had to dictate the numbers, literally dictate the numbers. Wow. 20, 20 landed, 40 thrown, 50 percent, you know, literally now the numbers, you know, they, they're in real time. It's interfaced in real time. So um, we're happy with that. We've added body, uh, body landed, which is becoming a very popular stat um with the networks, with the fighters. Um we have a uh a new program called CompuTrack now, which requires another operator so we can tell you where the fighters are in the ring and um whether they be at distance or on the perimeter and what what punches they're landing uh while on the ropes or around the perimeter so
1: which we, adds a uh, great that, narrative right to, to know if someone someone is closing off the ring or someone's running or dancing so that sounds pretty cool
0: yeah would, right if a fighter wants a fighter who comes into a fighter who is known as a mover and fighter b is the mover and fighter a is is pressuring him and not letting him move we're going to be able to tell you what fighter a landed uh you know, while preventing fighter B from moving and using the ring. So that, that's, um, you know, I'm happy with that, uh, with that new development. So you have so, three
1: guys staff in the fight then. Is that right? One per yes. fighter and then one doing the movement.
0: Yes, that's correct. There's three operators um, per fight. So, um, you know, I'm happy with where it's at. We're kind of limited. We do of course, we'd always like to be able to tell how hard a punch is landing, but, this that technology we've, we've had several meetings and several uh, uh, opp- opportunities to, to to look into the impact but hmm. it just it just uh, they can't it doesn't they can't get it to gel um, in real time it's great when they hit a bag you know you put the sensor in the wrist and yeah. you hit the bag and it gives you a wonderful reading but when you get it into a live situation they, they can't get that technology to work accurately so um
1: how would that even work would it be sort of like a wearable technology which i know has become increasingly popular with all sports um the
0: only yeah but the only way to effectively measure the impact of a punch is to have it in the in the fist the you know wear the punch in the fist of the glove the knuckle and we were very looking into it very strongly years ago and there's too many glove companies out there it have to be manufactured in the gloves now there used to be this everlast glove or reyes there's everlast now there's reyes there's rival title and title there's winning there's got to be six or seven different glove manufacturers out there and they have to they have to manufacture the glove with the technology in there um and then it has to be approved by the commission the fighters have to okay we we there were certain fighters who wouldn't even squall with with something in the glove because they felt like in their mind, like yeah. the glove, the glove was tampered with. It's like huh. a baseball player is fun, you know. They they have a certain bat. They tape a bat a certain way, or they just have uh, you know a certain way of of. Uh, yeah,
1: you're just, just not going to dissuade someone from.
0: Right. So there's too many obstacles, too many red flags for that impact. But that would be the missing link, but it's, it's not going to happen. So, you know, CompuBox is what it is. And with this, with the real time stats and the CompuTrack, um, I think, you know, we, we have all the bases covered and, and, you know, we're pretty happy with, with where things are at right now.
1: Sounds like it. Yeah. It would be cool if that wearable technology was able to become a part of it, but I could, I could see how there would be some hesitancy, you know, to that.
0: Yeah. And if it's not accurate too, it's, it, it, It's not. What good is it? And if it's not going to be used for every fight, if you get two fighters to really use it, great. But then if another fighter comes along with a different set of gloves and they don't want to use it, then you don't have it for that fight. There's just too many, too many red flags to, um, to contend with. So
1: yeah, and you're in the business. You're in the business of accuracy. Is that fair to say? I mean, about you know you you can have all these great innovations and the evolution that you described, but at the end of the day, if you're not accurate or as accurate as possible, then, you know, you're out of business. There you go. You're
0: right. It's true, especially in boxing, where like I said before, everybody's an expert. So, um, you know, if we weren't, if CompuBox wasn't accurate over the years, uh, we wouldn't be, probably wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be having this conversation now. And like you mentioned earlier too, the fact that it's one operator watching one fighter is what, you know, is what, um, what made it, what it is, it's virtually impossible for one operator to count both fighters, what they tried to do with the, uh, in the amateurs, with the Olympic boxing, they totally screwed that up. So, um, it's, you know, it's one, one operator, one fighter. And that's, you know, that's the only way that, uh, only way to do it accurately.
1: Yeah, well, you, you've made it work. I've enjoyed this conversation. Your company that you've built is a lot like boxing in itself. It's simple. It's really executed best when it's as simple as it is. And it's worked for you for 34 years. It sounds like it's just going to continue to get better and, and be a you know an even better contribution to the sport as it goes on.
0: Well, I hope so. We can have this. We can have this conversation in in another thirty four years, hopefully, Benjamin. <laughs> I ho-
1: I hope so. Uh, maybe maybe when the wearable technology comes into play. But even if not, I enjoyed it very much, Bob. And thanks for coming on.
0: My pleasure, Benjamin. Thank you.
1: My thanks to Bob for joining me and telling not only the story of CompuBox but his own as well. To introduce new technology to one of the oldest sports in nineteen eighty five change the narrative of how fights are covered and have the staying power 34 years later is certainly impressive. I enjoyed the conversation, and I hope now that when you think of CompuBox, you'll think a little bit about the driving force behind it. Don't forget, you can follow me on Twitter at BenjaminBlock21, or feel free to reach out to me via my website, BenjaminJBlock.com. Until next time, this has been Benjamin Block. Thanks for listening.